Everywhere you look in the world, you see use of missiles in military operations. Some of it by good guys, some of it from bad guys. That's why defending against missiles is a chief mission for the Army. For the United States, missile defense and freedom to operate in space go hand in hand. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington, I got an update from the commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command, Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler. One of my responsibilities, I have the 100th GMD Brigade, which are uh, soldiers that are stationed in Colorado Springs, as well as Alaska, California, and Fort Drum, New York. And those soldiers provide 24-7, 365 protection North America against intercontinental ballistic missile attacks from North Korea and from Iran. What's interesting about that formation, it's a multi-compo organization, so it is both active duty as well as Colorado and Alaska National Guard, and they do a fantastic job in keeping readiness, uh, staying vigilant and responding to any kind of North Korea tests that might uh, take place and staying vigilant on consuls 24-7. Yeah, that's my question, too, as Iran, you know, unfortunately, and North Korea, unfortunately, and Lord knows who else, China, they're always developing new capabilities and testing new types of missiles. What is the mechanism by which you can stay on top of what their offensive capabilities are so that defensive capabilities here can keep up? Sure. Yeah, we stay uh, very, very closely tied with the Missile Defense Agency. So as we see what the threat is doing out there and what our adversaries are doing with respect to their advances in offensive missile capabilities, the Missile Defense Agency is responsive to meeting those new requirements. And then they they work very closely with my operators. I mean, literally, we sit side by side with the engineers as we're going through the different development, uh, software development, etc., to make sure that the Missile Defense Agency doesn't develop something then that the operators aren't totally familiar with. Um, and then, and that's on the software side. And, and then uh, Missile Defense Agency right now is going through the development of the next-generation interceptor, which, again, they involve our operators in as they go through developing the NGI. Right. And the interceptor program, can that handle, say, I mean, what's the posture towards hypersonics, which are even developmental by the other nations, but that seems to be where people are headed. Yeah, so uh, again, MDA is working uh, super hard on, first off, being able to detect hypersonics. If you can't see it, you can't shoot it. And so working with the uh, HBTSS, the hypersonic ballistic, uh, basically our space-based layer that we have to be able to track hypersonics, then that will feed into the interceptor capabilities that we will uh, that they will continue to work on developing, and our operators will be the ones that employ it. Yeah, it's like the difference between a knuckleball and a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Some batters say they never see it go by, and so <laughs> right. you've got to see it before you can swing at it. Right, right. And you're tied in closely with the space operation and the space apparatus for the military. How does that work? Yeah, so I'm the uh, Army Service Component Command to General Jim Dickinson, the SpaceCom Commander. Uh, we've been doing that since the, really since the advent of Space Command in 2019. And uh, in that role, I have 1st Space Brigade. We provide forces to Space Command, and we work uh, very closely with the Space Force as well as with uh, uh, Navy and the Marine Corps in providing different service space capabilities to Space Command for operational employment. We use them in exercises. I have a little bit of convergence of space and missile defense. If I jump out of my Space and Missile Defense Command, commander responsibility into my joint functional component command for integrated missile defense there's also work that we're doing as jific imd with space command as you might be aware of in the latest unified command plan it took the missile defense responsibility out from underneath strategic command 
and has placed transregional missile defense uh, capability mission and responsibilities underneath U.S. Space Command. Transregional. Coming from outside of the United States, basically. Or going from one AOR to another. Got it. And so it used to be global missile defense, which was not a very accurate description, really, of of what the mission set and what we were facing. It was transregional missile defense. And and this made a lot of sense because General Dickinson and Space Command has responsibility of the global sensor manager. Well, many of our sensors that we have that we use for missile defense, they also are able to do space domain awareness. And so instead of arbitrating between STRATCOM and Space Command about use of these sensors, putting them all up underneath one combatant command solves the unity of effort, unity of command, and makes me responsive then to just one combatant command. Not that we ever had fistfights or anything between the two combatant commanders, but it just makes it easier for us to put it up underneath one commander. And the new term now is missile defeat as opposed to just missile defense. What is the difference, and how do you envision that? Yeah, so how I envision uh, missile defeat is if you uh, picture the traditional missile defense where it's active defense, where you see the Patriot and you see THAAD or Aegis BMD ships that are doing that active defense piece. Um, And there's also some passive defense, early warning, that's part of the traditional integrated air missile defense, and even attack ops. That's traditional integrated air missile defense. But then you take a look at what we're doing for left of launch capability. So before that missile gets off gets off the rails, gets off the tail, gets out of a silo, that left of launch capability, so we could deny and disrupt those capabilities before they launch, altogether becomes a missile defeat. And what we're trying to do is is we've been working and and, uh, through a couple of different exercises, establishing a missile defeat effects coordinator. So somebody who's responsible for taking that that whole that that whole vision that I just told you about and, and exercising that. And so in the previous exercise with Space Command we're, we've been rolling out this missile defeat effects coordinator concept and, and frankly, you know, test driving it a little bit. Yeah, so to kill a missile that would ordinarily come within the airspace, say, and you have to defend against it, to defeat it on the ground where it originates, that's not really missile defense command. That would be someone else that would shoot something at it. Right, and the missile defeat effects coordinator, that's the one who identifies the threat and is able to then influence maybe another COCOM to say, hey, here's where your targeting should be after. Uh, maybe there's not kinetic effects that we can apply to that solution. Yeah, so that, that's where you get back to the need for the space view because that's where the original knowledge of such a launch would originate in the first place, likely. Right, right. I guess there are maybe people on the ground in some of the areas, but I mean, basically. Yeah, and some of the geographic bankmans who have that, they have the intel, and they, they, they're well aware what the adversary missile order of battle is. But again, a missile defeat effects coordinator can help work that really holistically across combatant commands. Again, because it's a trans-regional missile threat. Yeah, so there's really an update in doctrine and an update in command structure for you in recent times. What does that have, what's the effect of that on workforce and what you need for talent? Yeah, so, um, so as, we're, as we're practicing these, uh, these exercises, this notion, it's, um, it, it's really been, it's a good challenge because it's a new approach and as, as my JIFIC IMD staff has been working with the SpaceCom staff, traditionally SpaceCom staff, you know, they've been, they've been really focused on, you know, space and on orbit and, and the space capabilities. Well, now we've brought the missile defense, transregional missile defense requirement into them. So it's been a good opportunity for us to exercise and integrate with their staff on that uh, new mission set for Space Command. Yeah, and the concept of the Army astronaut, that has emerged too. And that's not a, two words that you often hear conflated, but now, now it's a thing. Yeah, it sure is. We couldn't be prouder of uh, Frank Rubio, Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Frank Rubio, 
one of my Army astronauts who just returned from the International Space Station, and you know, he's been in the news here quite a bit lately. He set the record for an American astronaut uh, uh, in space, 371 days. He just so that's returned. more than a year, last that's, count. That's more than yeah, that is, he's spent more than a year in space, and um, he returned safe and sound. I had a chance to chat with him and catch up with him this past weekend and ask him, how he's doing as recovering, getting getting used to gravity again, and uh, how's his bone density? His his bone density is <laughs> it's getting there. Um, you know, as you would expect, NASA runs a, a an incredible number of tests on him, and mm-hmm. um, he didn't call himself the lab rat, but he's kind of a, he's he's a very good test case for NASA right now. But so as they do the testing on him and then rehabbing him to get him you know back to where he needs to be, you know, in the Earth's environment, he's in great spirits. He's glad to be home. He missed a couple of uh, key family events in that unexpected year, uh, mm. you know, the, that additional time. The additional I, time was because of the failure of a launch to, to get to the space station? Uh, what happened was they had uh, what, what they assumed was micrometeorites had damaged the cooling system on the, recovery, on the return vehicle. So NASA had to send, or, uh, Russia sent up a replacement vehicle, but it took them six months to stay on station uh, before he and his other his, uh, Russian crewmates could, could return. And so, um, but... Like a good soldier, he soldiered on. You know, he was extended. A lot of soldiers get extended on deployments. Frank was just a different, uh, different type of extension on his deployment in a different domain. Got it. And then you've super got, proud of him. And you had three Army astronauts graduated from from West Point. Yeah. So Drew Morgan, he's the commander right now at Quadrilateral Atoll. So I'm the senior commander responsible for Quad, which is out there in the South Pacific. Does a lot of our strategic missions. We have space fence out there. It does supports all the testing for Reagan test site for intercontinental ballistic missile tests and other missile defense tests that we do there. Drew has taken over uh, command of that just this past summer. And then Ann McLean, uh, who is in NASA right now, she just competed in the uh, Brigade Command Assessment Program. She wants to go on and... Uh, uh, become an Army Brigade commander. Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler, commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I spoke with him at this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um... This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.